Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee, and this is the Autosport Podcast. And welcome back to Series 3 of our world-famous Top 10s. Might not be world-famous, but I'll throw it in for those willing to believe it. And of course, all put together by our Chief Editor and our first guest on the podcast today, Kevin Turner. Kev, you are back. You can't get enough of making lists, and thank you for that. Oh, I'm fired up and looking forward to this, yeah. I think Series 2 was a bit niche, wasn't it? We had to kind of complete the, the teams. We did the big teams in Series 1, and then we did some famous, but kind of maybe a bit bit old, bit retro teams, Series 2. I think the Series 3 will be a bit more broader appeal. Well, let's see what we come up with this series. Uh, thank you very much, dear Lister, for tuning into this. Um, we will we'll take you through a little preview of the series in a moment after I introduce our second guest on the podcast today. That is motorsport journalist and former autosport ringleader, Damien Smith. Hello. Nice to be back. Good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. And uh, I'm looking forward to a new season of motorsport in 2023. There's some nice stories out there, actually. It's from, from F1 to various different series. Yeah, well, there's an awful lot going on obviously in F1 as always but yeah we were just saying WRC is looking good now we got Ott Tanak having got a, a, a an M Sport drive to take on uh, 
the incredible Kali Rovanperra, who for me was the the driver of 2022. So that's looking good. Yeah, there's lots to look forward to, isn't there? Do you think in in rally, if uh, Rovanperra can prove himself against an on form Tanak, you know, who's got a full time drive, forget the Sebastians because they're not going to be full time competition. Uh, that elevates Rovanperra when he's proved himself against a, a great driver if the car is great as well. Yeah, I think so. I think mean, all the big drivers, they all want to be against someone who can give them a run for the money because I think they enjoy it more. They all relish that battle more. I think in, in every form of motorsport, that's the case. And I think he'll welcome the fact that he's got someone in another car as well. And, you know, from the evidence of last year, Tanak was the, the closest one to giving him a run for his money and, you know, beat him on occasion. So it's, yeah, it's looking good. Yeah, you can gauge how good your win is by who finishes second sometimes, can't you? So if yeah. you've got, I was read, I was doing a Mansell list which we haven't done a podcast on, but we could do. We could do. Doing a Mansell list, and one of the candidates for that um, was Portugal 86, where behind him was Prost, Senna, Piquet. You think, well, if they were setting third and fourth, that's probably quite a good day. Yeah. Let's get into our new series of top tens. Give us a preview of some of the shows coming up later in the series, not today's. Uh, Okay, so we're going to do the uh, greatest F1 drives not to win the World Championship. So that'll be a, that's quite a nice that's quite a nice pub debate type one. That's a we, meaty one. It's a meaty one which we haven't looked at for quite a long time actually. I wonder so, who's going to be number one. For that yeah, one. <laughs> yeah. Some of these lists maybe don't have the hardest of number ones, but uh, yeah. And then we do one hit wonders. Yep. And uh, we'll do wet weather races, uh, and we're also going to do a couple of car ones. So we're going to do a, a best cars that didn't win a Grand Prix. And also the worst cars that did. We haven't done many worst. Oh, I like that. And I think worst cars is all right. I think if you do worst drivers, it's a bit bit personal. But I think worst car. Bearing in mind that one of the leading contenders for that list, the designer says, "Yeah, it was it was terrible." <laughs> I think we're okay to do a top ten worst F one cars to win a Grand Prix. I thought you were going to say that the designer was adamant it was the best thing that he ever did. Uh, I think they can say that right up to the, when the car hits the track. Right. And they go, ah, oh, because the stopwatch doesn't lie, does it? Let's get into our first show of this brand new series. Kev, what have you lined up for our first show? So it's the top 10 F1 drivers not to win a World Championship Grand Prix. F1 drivers, a Grand Prix, a yeah. World Championship Grand Prix. Yeah, so uh, so people that aren't, on the, aren't one of the 103 winners of a World Championship race, which that does include the Indy 500s, which is a boring anomaly we have to keep mentioning every time, 1950 to 60. Um, they might have won an F1 race, which we'll come to later, but not a World Championship Grand Prix. And they have to have been in F1. So we're not talking about people like Tom Christensen, obviously clearly mega, or a whole range of American drivers that have had fantastic careers but never started a race. That's a different list. Yep. Uh, so this one is people that did start F1 races but didn't win win the Grand Prix. Let's get into it. And for newbies to our list making, we start with, obviously, number 10. Uh, but uh, but that does also include a bit of a chat sometimes about the drivers that missed out. You know, places that if we put them in 11, 12, 13, the ones that missed out. So let's kick us off then, Kev. Where do we start? So number 10 is Stefan Johansson, who started 79 races, uh, did finish second, got 12 podiums, didn't get any poles or fastest laps. So he's in there, I think, because of a... He, I'd be interested to see what Damien thinks about, about Johansson. He was a very good driver. I don't think he was top draw. So I don't. he doesn't... We'll get, as we get further into this, it'll become more and more offensive that the driver didn't get... The driver in question didn't get a win. I can't think of a race that particularly stands out for Johansson and go, yes, he should definitely have won that. But I think for his long journey, you know, drove for Ferrari and McLaren, was you know, a strong drive, did a good job. 
um, you know, just for, just for the, the kind of the record and longevity within F1 in the sort of mid mid eighties, I thought he deserved he deserved a mention really. Yeah, I think that you're you're right. He's very popular, wasn't he? And he was a popular figure in the paddock, both both socially but also professionally. That he was rated as someone who you could plug in to do a good job when you when you needed them. And I guess he he kind of did that at McLaren. He was kind of um, you know re- replacing. Uh, Keke Rosberg and and he served his purpose for that that one season before before Senna joined. Um, but he was never you know he was never th- any threat to Prost. He was clearly a number two. Um, and if if the cards had fallen right for him, he might have lucked into a win. But as you say, I can't think of a race where you think I. Oh, one that got away, he really should have won that one. Yeah, I kind of think of almost like a little bit of a Sergio Perez in that way, in that kind of doing the a very obvious backup role. But probably yeah. wasn't even as close to Prost overall and performances. Perez occasionally has been to to Verstappen. Yeah, uh, and you know he was he was um, he's interesting man and had an interesting career after Formula One. Um, had those years in IndyCar where again he didn't really never quite shone, did he? But he was in a very competitive era uh, and he was never in a top drive. But he did what he did well with what he had, and then he won Le Mans. With 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 Christensen and Alberto, so really, you know, I I think that was a a lovely point almost f- f- to to think of not the end of his career because he went on and beyond that, but that was the, the latter stages of his career. It was it was the, the, a win that he deserved, I think, to have something of that nature, that stature. To hang his hat on, really. Almost, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think um, he deserved it. Another, this is the random thing I came across the other day. So Johansson plays a part in two of the greatest Nigel Mansell overtakes. Uh, which are among the best ever because, yeah, I think if we're doing a list of greatest overtakers, Mansell's got to be in contention in there. Uh, obviously, famously, the Hungarian Grand Prix in 1989, he was in the very slow, but even slower than normal because he had gearbox from Onyx when Senna and Mansell appeared and, and there's that famous three abreast <laughs> moment where Mansell goes. But also, I've been doing a bit of research on this, he's the bat marker that is kind of partly in the way. He's not really done anything wrong. He just happens to be there. When Mansell goes around the outside of Paul Tracy to win uh, the New Hampshire race in 1993 <laughs> kart race, which is he's probably his best IndyCar win. So just a completely random thing where Mansell's and Johansson's careers just momentarily crossed, allowing Nige to pull off a couple of great passes. I'm just a random thought there. I like it. A, a little mention, if you want or not, for any drivers who you maybe made your long list, but uh, get an honourable mention, but not the top ten. Well, I will say that obviously we're excluding current drivers. So obviously someone like Lando Norris, yeah, we hope will score a Grand Prix win. We're you know, not talking about people like Nico Hulkenberg because he's coming back to F1. But I guess Tom Price would oh, be Oh, Tom one. Price, yeah. Because I saw Tony Bryce is on the list. We'll get to him in a minute. But, and I always think of Tom, Tom Price and Bryce in, in a sort of... Because they're similar era and they both had terrible, tragic deaths. Um, but they're also both mega and I think Price should have been on this list. Uh, so I would probably put him in actually tenth. I'd, I'd probably knock Stefan out. Yeah, I think the so the Lost Generation David Tremaine's yes. book I think is an excellent book, and I recommend anyone to uh, to go and read that. Obviously Roger Williamson being the third of those three lost talents, British talents of the seventies. Um, the reason I put Bryce in there and not I mean I, Price did win a Formula One race, of course, did win the race of champions at Brown's Hatch for Shadow. Um, but the reason he's not there is I don't think he really tucks Jean-Pierre Jarier up, particularly when they're teammates. You say perhaps Jarier maybe had the edge overall. Okay, maybe that would have changed as time went by and Price had had more of a career. Whereas I think Bryce compares very favourably to Alan Jones, who obviously went on, where well, Jarier didn't want it on to not win a Grand Prix. 
tune in for episode two of uh, the Series 3 podcast. Uh, whereas Jones did go on to win a world champion. Actually, I think it's probably a bit underrated in history. I think he retired too soon. So that was my argument for, for Bryce getting into this. So he's, he's eighth. Um, he did only start 10 Grand Prix. His best finish was six. So statistically quite weak. But when I read David's but it was really Bryce that stood out to me as being like this guy was something really special. I think Price was good. I think Williamson it's probably a bit too early to say, but Bryce, I really he's the one that jumped out to me as yeah, this this guy was mega. Yeah. Everyone says that, don't they? Who worked with him or had any involvement with that, him. That's the feeling you get, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we'll we'll get on. Uh, well, we've done number eight now. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> no, that was my fault. We screwed the top <laughs> ten list. And then between those two drivers, yes. let's come slightly more up to date. Who's at ni- in, num- in number ninth place? So nine is Romain Grosjean, 179 starts, so a lot more than uh, most on this list. Uh, best finish to second, 10 podiums, one fastest lap. But he wasn't sure what to do with Grosjean. I find he's one of those drivers I find really irritating. In what way? Because in terms of basic ability, he was really quick. Like at Lotus, he was quicker than Kimi Raikkonen. Uh, once he once he stopped crashing, he was quicker, and he was he was for a while. It's, it's easy to forget, but when uh, Vettel was going on his winning spree in twenty twelve, especially twenty thirteen, uh, it was really actually that Grosjean came closest to to stopping him. Uh, as one race at the Nurburgring, he was very close. You know, he had some really good drives where he was really only beaten by a better car. Um, and I would suggest there were probably less talented drivers who have won a Grand Prix. But Grosjean's also frustrated. Quite often, he's he's kind of a enigmatic and we've talked about this before I'm not a fan of that sort of driver like you need to deliver the goods every time uh, and Grosjean's a bit up and down even at Haas you'd see him get the big result with Magnussen be the more consistent runner uh, going across to IndyCar he's been the same you think he, an F1 driver of his ability should go in there and be doing more but he's he's peripheral he's like the anti Alonso Alonso knows where everyone is all the time and you get the impression that Grosjean barely knows what's next to his car I think that's the so He's there. I think he needs to be there on pure ability, but I don't think he could get much higher because I think he quite often was the architect of his own downfall. Yeah, I'd agree. He, I was actually talking to him just the other day about his Lamborghini new new Lamborghini deal, and um, he's a really he's a great guy to talk to. He's very interesting, very articulate, and really bright. Um, and um, with his experience. You just think you should be doing more, you know. And I think he knows it for the the, the IndyCar season just gone. He was very open that it was a disappointment, disappointing year, and he struggled with the Andretti setup and getting comfortable with the setup they used. And he had to sort of work with his engineer to try and f- try and find some common ground. I think, and he said it got better towards the end of the year, and he's quite confident for next year. But he knows he should be winning races in IndyCar. I think that's the thing. So I think that's this this coming season is a big one for him. And um, you know, the, the bubble kind of burst for him because he, he came in to coin having uh, come off the back of that horrendous crash, a lot of goodwill. And of course, he did really well in that first year. Uh, so uh, and then last year, he had lots of collisions and troubles with other drivers that we'd, we'd sort of seen that side of him in Formula One. And he's kind of a bit labelled by that uh, sort of troublemaker thing isn't he that he he's not great wheel to wheel yeah i mean i'm he's an interesting choice for an endurance driver isn't he yeah like, he so, is, i mean yeah. i mean of course he was very quick in the matek Ford gt yeah um, I, i'd spoke to him when he was doing his fia gt uh and i kind of wasn't sure what to expect F1, xf1 drive that's kind of down and trying to get back in mm. and, and as you say he was a lovely guy to speak to um uh and he did a really good job but you think You've got to really have your wits about you in those cars when you're lapping traffic and potentially fighting cars of a similar performance. Mm. So, 
Yeah, but I'd be interested to see how he gets on. He he says something that will appeal to you, Kev, though, because um, he he quoted Mario Andretti and doing the Indy 500 and flying back to Europe, you know, and and, and sort of doing F1 and IndyCar at the same time. He wants to do IndyCar and sports car at the same time. And because they keep the, the big Enduros in America away from the IndyCar schedule, he says, I can do both. And he's really excited by that prospect. Yeah, that's and cool. And it's great that, to hear yeah. a driver having that enthusiasm to do two codes at once. You know? Yeah, absolutely. All right, we've half touched on our next number eight place. But Kev, give us the stats on this driver and we'll have a bit more of a chat as well. So eight is uh, Tony Bryce, 1975, 10 starts, best finish sixth, no podiums, no poles, no fastest laps, which obviously sounds, yeah, that does not sound outstanding. But as we were just saying, I think he was an outstanding talent. Uh, you know, the car he had, uh, you know, that was the Embassy Hill operation as Graham Hill obviously was stepping down from, I think he saw something in Bryce is, 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 is the kind of impression you get, uh, you know, compared favourably to, admittedly still also quite a young Alan Jones at that time uh, so th- yeah I just I think he's this is perhaps going slightly against my usual thing of I'd, I tend to plump for actual you know actual races and careers and statistics that are there as opposed to what might have been mm. but I think in this case there's I don't know there's just a feeling that that he was the one of those three that could have gone on to achieve something I, I like your thinking I think I would probably put him a bit lower down um, for that reason that we haven't got enough evidence because no matter how good your junior career is it only really counts when you start doing it in Formula 1 doesn't it we've seen it countless times with so many drivers uh, you know from Jan Magnussen to you know there's just so many of them or well, the next person on the list even oh exactly exactly <laughs> you know and, and um, yeah everyone who yeah, as I said earlier everyone who sort of worked with Bryce in Formula 3 and they you know, they all say he was special and, and the indications were he would have been, but um, eighth on this list, I would probably put him a bit lower. Let's move on. A driver that did come into Formula One having won German F3 and Formula 3000, highly rated with big backing as well, but ultimately, you say, failed to deliver. Tell us about him. So this is almost the opposite, and there's lots and lots of data about this driver. <laughs> so number seven is Nick Heidfeld, 2000 to 2011, 183 starts, best finish to second, 13 podiums, which uh, I believe is a record for a non-Grand Prix winner. Uh, one pole, two fastest laps. So there will be a lot of people that say that Nick should be higher up this list. Um, but I just think he was another one, slightly, maybe a slightly better version of Johansson in the sense that he was a very good driver, hung around a long time, did a good job, um, but never quite. He wasn't a megastar in an era where you've got, you know, Sebastian Vettel, Lewis Hamilton, Fernando Alonso, Robert Kubica, his teammate for a while. Um, He's just not quite in that. I I think perhaps he's a little unfortunate. He's perhaps a little bit more unfortunate than Johansson because he should probably have got a, or he could have made a strong case for getting the McLaren gig after performing strongly against Kimi Räikkönen at Sauber in Kimi's first season. Everyone got starstruck by by the young Finn, didn't they? And off, off he went to have a career at McLaren and, you know, won quite a few races in the World Championship with Ferrari. So, in a parallel universe, Nick Highfield probably is a Grand Prix winner, but I don't know. Again, there's not really one that particularly stands out to me, except you could say he did play the team game at 2008 Canadian Grand Prix. You know, he was on a he was on a one stopper, and Robert Cooper, his teammate, was on a two stopper, and uh, Lewis Hamilton managed to take himself and Kimi Raikkonen out of that race uh, with the uh, the pit lane snafu, <laughs> uh, uh, and and Highfield played the team game, let Kubica through. On his, you know, his different mm. strategy, and then held up. I think Fernando Alonso's Renault to help him out, and Kubica was able to build a big enough lead to come in and out and and take the win. Uh, but if Kubica was on this list, he'd be higher. 
because yeah. I think he was mega. Yeah. So I'm pleased that he was a Grand Prix winner. So, yeah, Nick, Nick seventh for me, I think. Yeah, the, the late, great Simon Aaron used to call Nick Heidfeld Nick interesting because he, he wasn't very interesting. But but he was, um, I just always think of Heidfeld as like a perfect professional, just really, really solid, who you could plug into a team and would do exactly what you expect him to do, uh, whether it was a, 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 you know, at a BMW or, or, or Williams. He, he was just solid performer and I kind of wish one a drop for him that he so he wouldn't be on this list I think he deserved one win I, I'd uh, agree know. with that and in a previous if you think that was a really competitive era as well the, that he was operating in both in terms of drivers but also manufacturer involvement in F1 and he, he very much held his own within that environment for you know a decade and he had the he, machinery at the time to do it and of course he also was the you know he was the other guy that did a good job at Silverstone in 2008 it's just that he was a minute behind Lewis Hamilton's you know I think probably still after all this time on Lewis Hamilton's standout drives um so yeah just a previous era he probably let's face it in a previous year when cars were less reliable he'd have almost certainly chalked, a, chalked one or two up yeah he hung around a long time and he, you know he had a, a very good career um uh, beyond Formula One as well, in the sense that you know, he he managed to um, successfully become a, a, a decent Formula E driver, and then he's had a sports car career as well. You know, and he's he he, he he's just good. He's just a really good, solid pro, and he wasn't quite the mega driver we thought he might have been in '99 when he won that 3000 title because he did look awesome uh, in that year, uh, and the momentum didn't quite carry on despite the fact he had the McLaren link. So you think if the fact it didn't suggest he wasn't quite there and I think the, the evidence there's a lot of evidence isn't there let's face it <laughs> yeah. the evidence is he was he was a really good Formula 1 driver but but nothing more nothing to be ashamed of by that by, by the way and big, big respect to him well from Nick interesting in 7th place who's in 6th can we do the next two together yeah well, if you I want do that. so I think these two always they came up together in the Tyrrell list that we did and they're together in this as well but in kind of slightly different ways so at 6 I've got Stefan Beloff and at fifth, I've got Martin Brundle. Okay. So they were Tyrrell teammates, came into F1 in 1984. Now, after a year and a half, you'd say probably Beloff was the... I mean, I think that it's one of these things that you get killed early on, it kind of helps the legend and mystique. Uh, and that's what I mean about that versus actual results and knowledge and data that we have. So this is that kind of problem. So I'd say that Beloff probably did have a marginal advantage over Brundle in their year and a half together. It's actually quite close when you look at the qualifying and the racing. It's marginal, but you'd say probably Beloff is slightly ahead. Then, of course, he he, he was killed at, at Spa and sports car race trying to go around the outside of Jackie X at Eau Rouge in a 956 Porsche, which I think was a was a... Was his fault? I mean, you know, it was a mis- it was a misjudgment, um, but she paid a high price for. Um, and I put him behind um, Brundle because of Brundle's longevity. We saw so much of him in F one. He deserved, to, and yeah, he often he was in hopeless cars as well. Um, so I actually, of course, um, on the on the stats, uh, Stefan's best finish is fourth, but actually it was second because he was third. Monaco, Monaco third, yeah. Uh, but of course, that was expunged from the record books when they needed a rule change, so they kicked Tyrrell out of the. There's yes. a podcast in that somewhere as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the 1984 results for, for for Martin and for Stefan don't don't exist. 
Um, so Martin Brown officially has nine podiums, although he also got a, a second pl- a second place finish that season. Uh, no poles and no fastest laps, but he probably came a bit closer as well. Canada ninety two, he could have he could maybe have won. Yeah. Um, so it's it's and and he compared pretty well actually to Mark Schumacher in in ninety two. So I just felt that his longevity and um, comparing more consistently across uh, a long period of time just edged him ahead of Beloff, even if Beloff was perhaps a bit faster. Are they in the right order? Yeah, I think so. I would, I would agree with the order. Um, just a couple of thoughts on, on these two. Um, I remember running a piece on Beloff in another magazine, um, and Martin basically said he was the fastest driver he came up against um, and in terms of pure ability. Um, but he did, he did always... It's easy with hindsight, but he he had that demeanour of a driver who wasn't going to grow old, wasn't he? He was just so wild. And, and um, you would have thought that sports car racing, especially yeah. partnered with someone like Derek Bell, who'd been around a bit, would have kind of... Uh, I mean, Derek's quite... Um, yeah, he, he's quite been quite outspoken about this because he got a bit fed up having to bring the fuel the fuel mileage back on, you know, Stefan go out and use all the fuel and Derek has to go tool round for his stint, look really slow, but to get the fuel, and of course the Nürburgring, you know, the famous, you know, fastest lap ever, And but then they didn't win the race because he put it on his roof and rolled it into a ball. And you kind of think that in a period where cars were more dangerous, both in sports car racing and Formula One, that maybe he was just too on the limit and that he was chancing his arm too often and that he was always going to get caught out eventually. Um, but yeah, maybe that's a bit unfair because yeah, Martin obviously had you know, had, a, had a big crash in '84 as well. So you know, it's a little bit of luck there. But yeah, and, and Martin, um, he drove some dogs, didn't he? He really did. Yes, I mean, when really he and when he got in a decent car like the '89 Brabham, he showed really well in that car um, with with no finance, a team that was really you know on the on the on the downward spiral. Um, and then the '92 Benetton, you know. Um, I've done quite a lot on this because uh, <laughs> because I'm writing a book on Benetton at the moment. Uh, just a little plug there. Um, so Pat Simmons says that of all the drivers he's worked with, uh, Martin was the one that he underrated the most. And he didn't realise until years later just how good Martin was in 92 against Schumacher. And that, you know, uh, he deserves a lot more credit than he got. Uh, he had a really difficult start to that year. And um, things just weren't going his way while Schumacher was coming off the back of 91 and those first few races with Benetton, that incredible Jordan debut. And he just kept it going and he was scoring consistently and scoring podiums. And Martin was in, you know, in, in relation, was was struggling. Then Canada happened, which he should have won and he would have won without a mechanical problem. Uh, and Martin still thinks that's the one that got away. He tells a nice story that... Um, he got out of the car and Senna had retired at the same point of the circuit and uh, Senna looked at him and said, hurts, doesn't it? Martin said, yeah, <laughs> it really does. And then uh, uh, Senna went back and um, Martin was left with a McLaren, so he got in the car and had a, had a look round <laughs> and had an opportunity to have a, have, a, have a good look round it. So, uh, yeah, I think, and yeah, uh, it's interesting talking to people who worked at Benetton. They, they really rated him, particularly in hindsight, and even Briatore now admits that uh, it was a mistake to let him go at the end of the year and obviously Patrese didn't work out very well for them in 93 you know Martin deserved to keep that drive for a second year yeah I completely you know, agree with all that and I was going to say once he got over that kind of I can't match Schumacher over a single lap thing his race pace was often as good like they'd often be together sometimes Martin would be ahead he was, he was ahead of Schumacher at the British Grand Prix when the Williamses were going down the road um, and actually I think Martin was ahead of Schumacher at Spa 
And it was, wasn't it? Well, um, Shuey went, Shuey Shuey went, went off. off. Martin, went, Martin past. went past him. <laughs> and it was as Martin went past him that Shuey recognised the state of Martin's tyres yeah. and made a call there and then to come straight into the pits to change. And that won in the race. And Martin says, you know, if, if I'd just made the same call, but he, you know, Martin couldn't see his own tyres. <laughs> so, you know, but if he'd made that call to, to come in on that lap, he would, probably would have won the Belgian Grand Prix and Schumacher would, would have been second to it. Yeah, I mean, that says a lot about Mark Schumacher as well, but... Uh, it says an awful lot about Mark Schumacher. Yeah, but yeah. The, the fact is that Martin was in the same vicinity and one of them is a you know, 91-time Grand Prix winner of seven world titles and Martin didn't get one, which... They had a lot of respect a for each other, actually. Michael respected... Martin and they got on really well that year and I think Martin said there was um, an occasion years later where during his punditry time uh, he said something that was translated into German and Michael took offence at it and they didn't speak for years because of that which was a shame but happily they did get over that eventually and um, you know um, became quite friendly again but I think I think Michael from everything I've heard and read and people I've spoken to, he had respect for Martin. And I think that's that says a lot, given that Michael didn't have a lot of respect for anyone at that time. <laughs> <laughs> OK, we are, we're four, four to go. We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll get into debate the next four drivers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never really thought about tools until I bought a house in the suburbs. It's like this weird homeowner test if I need a tool for a project and don't have it. And my neighbor Ted loves to give me that look when I ask to borrow a pole saw. A year ago, I didn't even know pole saws existed. And now I gotta borrow one from Ted? What is happening? Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home and auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Welcome back to our Autosport Top 10s and we're talking about the greatest Formula 1 drivers never to have won a World Championship Formula 1 race and there are four to go. Let's get into it then. Uh, Kevin Turner, who's in fourth place? Fourth is Derek Warwick, uh, who was only about seventh on this list when we did it uh, 2014. When I say we, I was only peripherally involved, which is why I've been able to correct it in this. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, and I'm going to admit, I know Derek well and I've worked with him uh, as part of the, you know, the, 
the Aston Martin Autobot BRDC and driver award. And he's he is a he's just a phenomenon, really. He's a driving force. You can see why he won a World Sports Car Championship and and won Le Mans and uh, why everything he touches, he's just, he's just driven. Uh, he's just one of those successful people, uh, and it only makes it more baffling to me that he didn't win a World Championship Grand Prix. You have to remember in that sort of pre Mansell going to Williams. Uh, in '85, Derek was probably the British talent that was everyone was expecting to be the you know the next challenger. So he got the Renault deal in '84, uh, and he you know he led the way again uh, you know for for that team most of the time. Could should would have won the Brazilian Grand Prix, but suspension break after a clash with uh, an earlier clash with uh, Nicky Lauda's McLaren, uh, and he had. But after that, he never really had as good a kit again. He you know he stayed around at Renault in '85 when the car was absolutely awful. I think they went to a, him and Patrick Tombay went to the first test and it was two or three seconds of that slow in the previous car and they went, oh, oh, oh. and he hadn't, you know, he didn't go to Williams and he got a chance to go to Lodz and Ayrton Senna, you know, vetoed that famously and then sent him a Christmas card um, <laughs> uh, 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 because Senna didn't think, quite rightly probably at the time, that Lodz couldn't run two, uh, yeah, two equal cars and he wanted it all to be focused on him. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I just think a very high-performing driver that's around a long time. So he stats 146 starts, uh, best finish to second, four podiums, two fast laps, no poles. Um, uh, and he yeah, he did a great job, I think, at, at footwork or arrows, as, as it was called. He saw off saw off Eddie Cheever, had a great day in Canada. But actually, that, that's the most famous one. Yeah, He was he, he could have won that race with the caveat that obviously Senna should have won it, but had his own car failure. Uh, but he had lots and lots of other performances, which these days would be regarded as excellent midfield, you know, getting into the top 10 point scoring opportunities. Uh, but he, he had an awful lot of seventh places. So I think Lando Norris at that point, but now that seventh place looks mega behind the big three and you get points. Whereas yeah. then he was like, oh, we don't care if he finishes seventh. So yeah, for, for me, Derek's just one of those drivers that I, I, you know, should have won a Grand Prix. Yeah. And as you say, Kev, um, that mid 80s era, uh, in terms of the, the next Brit who was going to, start winning Grand Prix. everyone thought it was Derek didn't they rather than Mansell and I think the big sliding doors moment was that 85 season when apparently he had the Williams drive offered to him and how times change the story goes that he was asking the likes of Autosports Nigel Roebuck and Alan Henry what should I do you know and uh, they kind of said stay where you are because Renault you know is a good good place to be and of course whoever's whoever um takes the blame for that decision it's Derek essentially who turned down the Williams drive apparently and, and there and therefore Mansell took that drive and ended up um, winning Grand Prix and becoming the Nigel Mansell we all know and, and, and Derek never got the chance of a top drive again um, so yeah it's 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 pretty pretty brutal in that sense um, and he's had to live with Mansell having won 31 races and he hasn't won any. I get the impression he's not too. He's not sort of too bitter about that. I mean, obviously they're they're mates, and I think you know Derek's one of the people, one of the few people that can take the Mickey out of Nigel and sort of get away with it, really, because I think there's a yeah you know, sort of mutual respect there as well. I think the one it probably rankles with him more is the Senna thing, because he'd have liked to have compared himself to you know the best, or certainly the fastest, arguably the best driver of his generation. You know how how you know, how good was it? Because you know Derek had seen off teammates before he'd obviously been against Nelson PK in F3 like at that point he didn't really fear anyone um, he's, he's an interesting case because he you know going further back um, 79 he moved up to Formula 2 and had a disaster of a season with a, a customer march and, and it was a horror horror season almost finished his career and he was amazed that um, Tolman came in for him in 80 to, to partner turned out to be Brian Henton 
and was was going to be Stephen South, and then he got sacked, and, and Henton came in, and he he very much played the understudy to Henton that that season, and you know they dominated the European F two Championship. He, he did win races, but Henton was the man, and that sort of carried on into Tolman when they went into Formula One um, with those dreadful early cars, uh, and you can't you couldn't really judge anyone <laughs> on those cars. But by by eighty three, he'd kind of grown into Formula One, hadn't he? And he'd become a, a really solid performer, which is why he got the Renault deal. Well, well actually, he's, he points out he was a consistent point scorer at the end of 83 with the Tolman, because yeah, history recalls our Senna came in and was amazing in that in that car in 84. He's like, well, actually, the car was pretty good by the end of 83, as Derek showed with all those. And I do wonder whether Ayrton, being the savvy person that he was, he'd have known how good Derek was from what Tolman had told him. So I imagine then a couple of years later when he's at Lotus, he thinks, I don't really fancy being in a British team with a talented British driver no language barrier, all this. Yeah. I think maybe I'd rather not have that as an added problem in my uh, season. But it's interesting that um, um, that attitude, being concerned about driving for a British team and not being Brit. Senna had it. We've seen it with Alonso. Uh, Sebastian Loeb had it in rallying. Uh, he never really, he was always put off driving for British teams. I was talking to David Richards recently and he was saying that um, Guy Frecklin at uh, Citroen was always whispering in Loeb's ear, don't go to a British team because you'll get, you'll get screwed over. You won't, you won't get a fair crack at it. And when he finally drove for ProDrive in Dakar, as he, as he is now, you know, his first visit to ProDrive, D- David said, go and look around, anything you want, you know, ask any questions. And he was kind of amazed at how open things were. And it was, it was almost like, oh, I wonder if I could have done this earlier. You know, uh, so a lot of those drivers, Alonso's always had that thing about, you know, sort of McLaren in 07, that he was, because he was a Spaniard coming into a team with a young rookie Brit, that there was a, a prejudice against him. It's that sort of paranoia. Yeah, and then you've got someone like Alain Prost or Sebastian Vettel who've embraced, you know, embraced yeah. the sort of British teams that they joined and the whole British culture. And what we had Seb obviously at the Autosport Awards in December, and you know he he loved you know the British motorsport culture and all the rest of it. So yeah, it's an interesting uh, interesting one that. Let's get on to the podium and the top three places. Who have you put in third place? So third is Jean Pierre Jarier, and he's here. I, I'm not suggesting that he's the third most talented driver on this list. Uh, he's here because I factored in how ridiculously close he got to winning a race uh, and actually did it, well, <laughs> as I say, he did it three times. One of those doesn't even count because he didn't get to start the pole position that he started. He, that he had at Shadow in, in 75 in uh, the first race, but he should have won uh, the Brazilian Grand Prix with the Shadows absolutely disappearing down the road and the car broke towards the end. Uh, and when, after Ronnie Peterson was, was killed at Monza in 1978, he jumped into the Lotus 79 uh, and was winning the Canadian Grand Prix quite comfortably as well. Only to, to So he, it, more than the other drivers on this list so far, he had the job done twice. Uh, not just early on or possibly could have won. Would have won, was going to win and was, was, was stopped through no fault of his own. So, as I say, I think there were probably other drivers on this list who perhaps were overall better drivers. And who had better careers, but in terms of how close they got, um, you know, he, 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 that elevated him on this list for me. That's an interesting uh, choice and point, and I, I, I can see what you, where you're driving with that, Kev. That he, he did get close, and I think people forget that he was actually pretty handy in that mid seventies era, because by the end of his F1 career, I think he was considered a bit of a journeyman and a bit of a mobile chicane at times and, and you know, uh, which is a bit harsh really because he was, you know, especially, as I say, uh, when he first 
appeared on the scene and, and made his, uh, those 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 shadow days. He he appeared to have everything going for him. When you're putting the list together, how much weighting do you give driver mistakes versus machinery letting them down in terms of where you feel compelled to put them in the top ten? Oh, I think that's quite key. I think if you've if you're leading the race but you stick it in the wall. Yeah, that's that's on you that you didn't win a race. But I think a lot, you know, most of the people on this list, that's not the case. Um, I, I remember speaking to Tony Southgate about the the Brazil seventy five race. And he said the most ridiculous minor, I can't remember exactly what it was now, but the minor thing that put the car out that they'd never had before, didn't have subsequently, and the guys fight it up and was fine afterwards. It could be just, like a washer. It's just that, that kind 50 of that yeah. sort of nonsense, really. Yeah, um, I, I mean that that the Shadow DN5 will appear on another series three podcast, <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, that that's uh, yeah. Take uh, Damien's point actually that the back end of his career perhaps was less impressive. This is more about how good he was early on. You know, they were they were quick at Monaco as well. Had a good good downforce that car, and he generally sort of had a little edge over Tom Price. Not again, not enormous. Um, so yeah, it's but it's mainly the how close he got, and then as you say, lost through no fault of his own. Didn't say the stats did I, but he started 134 races, best finish of third, podiums three, poles three, fastest laps three. So to get three poles, uh, that's there aren't many there aren't many F1 drivers that have taken three poles and not got a win. I should just thought of someone who should be on this list, in my opinion, Teo Fabi, who was also um, he took. How many poles? Two poles, was it? I didn't need a lap. Never had a lap of Grand Prix, <laughs> no. Um, but I mean, that. I mean, is that not a... I suppose it depends why he didn't lead the, didn't lead the lap. Again, um, <laughs> you, you speak to people who work with him at the Benetton and, uh, time, and he was he, he was megaly fast, particularly through the fast corners, which is why um, you know, he was good on ovals, wasn't he, in IndyCar, you know. Um, uh, really brave and really committed, and um, in terms of pure talent was there didn't quite have it mentally i think um but he would have been a good one to to, to chuck in this list and I, I think if you're looking at tony bryce and stefan johansson i would i would argue he could be knocking on on their places interesting let's go back i'm, to- I'm making a note oh this was now known as the karoon chandhok note because he forced me to make a note during series one uh <laughs> It's been eight years since you uh, you had revised this year list. So at the turn of the, uh, the the decade's end, you can revisit that note and decide. <laughs> Series eight <laughs> of the top ten podcast. Did I, did, did I get that wrong? Yeah, no, um, yeah. Right, final two then. And uh, let's go back to the early days of the World Championship. Who's in second place? Yeah, I'm not going to do the top two together. I know tradition says that I should, but I'm not going to because I think we want to speak about these two okay. individually. If that's all right, you're yes. the master. No, no, go ahead. Um, so, yeah. Uh, number two is Jean Bera, 1951 to 59, starts 52, best finish of second, nine podiums and one fastest lap. Uh, and I think the top two on this list are pretty clear. I'm fairly comfortable with the order. Um, I, I know that a former editor who uh, I've been in contact with recently did admit that they put the old the other way around in 2014 just to be provocative really oh really and to uh, and to okay. just be different because they didn't want to be too predictable okay. but i'm happy to be predictable if that's correct it's the accuracy to get the list right exactly so yeah so bear was actually a top driver i'd say he was a top driver of the of the 50s comfortably the best driver that didn't win a, a world championship grand prix and of course did win quite a few uh f1 races um uh but they went on championship 
Uh, he also led, uh, he should have won the 1957 British Grand Prix entry, had that in the, the famous race that obviously Moss comes through to win in the in the, the Van Wall that Tony Brooks started. You know, Bearer was down the road in his 250F Maserati. So, uh, and he, as I say, he won he won numerous uh, F, non-championship F1 races, works driver at Maserati, well regarded at BRM when he was there, really lifted their spirits with a couple of non-championship wins uh, in Cat and then uh, the International Trophy. So he was an F1 winner. He just didn't get that world championship win. I don't think he's quite on a par with the benchmark drivers of his era. If we're talking Moss and Fangio, his teammates to both of them uh, during his career, and they did have the edge, as you would probably expect. Um, but he wasn't a million miles away. You know, he was a de- definite top-draw driver of the era. He's one of those on his day drivers you know, when when everything aligned um like that day at Aintree you mentioned he he was a match for the best of the, of that of that time but not consistently so but uh, yeah i think i think he's definitely of that era he's the standout and uh yeah i probably wouldn't argue with you care to have him that high up on the list yeah, I mean, he won, I'm just having a quick look, he won F1 races in 54, 55, he won quite a lot in 57, uh, in two different cars, the 250F Maserati and the BRM, um, and obviously non-championship F1 races could range from basically a Grand Prix, like the International Trophy, uh, but just not a championship counting around to some minor events. So there is a mix of quality across the races that, that he won, but I don't think any of his, I'm, I'm pretty sure the contemporaries, um, you know, would would have seen him as a threat. And um, when when we did the piece, um, uh, yeah, a few years back on on him, we spoke to Ian Titchmarsh, who's another guest on our top ten podcast sometimes, and he did say that you know that at the time, yeah, he would have been regarded as as one of the top three or four drivers, you know, in in say the late fifties. Uh, and now, if you're one of the top three or four drivers, you're gonna you're gonna win races, aren't you? It's another one of those intriguing ones. If if had he lived uh, beyond fifty nine. And would yeah, what what would he have been like in the uh, the one and a half litre era in Formula One in the sixties? You know? Yeah, he because he'd fallen out with Ferrari, uh, the Ferrari team, and and walked out. So he was killed at Avis in his own Porsche, but he was still very popular at Bourne. So there's a good chance that he may have found himself in a BRM in sixty sixty one. If he then hung around, would he have been? Would he have had access to the one and a half litre V eight in which Graham Hill won the World Championship in? Uh, and then he's probably on abilities, probably somewhere between Hill and Richie Ginther. So, Ginther didn't quite get a win with BRM. Would would be, I, I, you kind of get into more and more conjecture, don't you? But he definitely he's he's what it's, it's it's we're into definitely into the realm of it's offensive that this driver didn't win a world championship race. <laughs> All right, is it offensive that the number one driver didn't win a world championship race? Who is it, and what are their stats? Number one is Chris Amon, 96 starts, a best finish of second, eleven podiums, five poles. Uh, and three fastest laps. And I think this is a comfortable number one. Okay. Uh, there are some people that rate that rate Eamon as, as being among the best of his era and should, could, would have fought for a world championship. Never, never ne- mind a win. Never mind a win. Yeah, He's probably the only driver on this list you'd say was beha- perhaps good enough to win a world championship. That That's a bit debated with some of the other people further down the list perhaps. But but the reason, the, the main reason he's on this list is this the number of times he's in he's in position to win a Grand Prix. So it's Spanish Grand Prix 1968. And by the way, he's leading Ferrari in 68 with uh, Jackie Ix as his teammate. So... Uh, and he's the team leader, so that tells you that tells you something. It's obviously a you know a legend. Um, so he's leading Spanish Grand Prix in '68 uh, when his fuel pump failed. That was one that got away. He was battling John Surtees in Belgium when a stone pierced the radiator, 
Don't worry, the reasons for retirement will get more ridiculous. Okay. Uh, Canada 68, he led for 72 of the 90 laps when the transmission failed. So that's three races in 68. He, he was actually one of the fastest drivers in 68. Could have fought for the world championship. That's the period where Arthur Jim Clark uh, is killed, really. You've got uh, Jackie Stewart, Graham Hill and, and Chris Amon kind of fighting to be the kind of feel the voice. Jackie Stewart obviously did stamp his authority in the end um, during that sort of post-Clark era. Uh, Spanish Grand Prix 1969, he was 40 seconds ahead of Stewart when his engine broke. Uh, Belgium 1970 was uh, all over Pedro Rodriguez's BRM, V12 BRM, for the whole race in the March 701, which wasn't much cop as a Grand Prix car, I would suggest, and finished a close second. Monza 71, the famous slipstreaming race that Peter Gethin won. Eamon was probably the quickest guy there, but ripped off his you know, his whole visor instead of just one and got a blast of 200-mile-an-hour air. You could say that's his fault, but, I mean, even that is pretty ridiculous. Uh, and then the race that I was fortunate enough to speak to him about um, when I went to, to New Zealand, and uh, he's fantastic, he was fantastic company, and we did a race of my life, and he picked the 1972 French Grand Prix, which he dominated from pole for Matra, um, got a puncture and charged back and he took something like a minute out of Jackie Stewart in the lead. Like he was on a completely different level that day um, and he was adamant in the car and he was just, you know, they should have won that race. It was what, it was the, the that race where there were lots of shards and bits of stones because I said to him, oh, Stewart says he was deliberately avoiding them and that, you know, you weren't. He said, oh, it's nonsense. I didn't, you know, we were quick enough. I could, you know, some of them were just unavoidable and uh, if they were to be avoided, I could do it. So, yeah, I mean, that's a ridiculous list of races. Any one of those could have... Um, yeah, it could have been a win, and he did win two non-championship F1 races. He won the nineteen seventy-one races at Silverstone, nineteen seventy-one in the March seven hundred one, ahead of Jackie Stewart in another car. So, top draw driver, easy number one. Is Damien going to disagree with me? No, not at all. <laughs> no, no. Um, uh, interesting things about Chris Amon is um, terrible judgment. Generally, was the, was his main problem um, that he he understandably ran out of patience with Ferrari because of reliability. But if he'd stuck around for seventy, yeah, you know, and and seventy one, he'd have been a world championship contender, I'm sure, and he he knew it. Um, the Matra seventy two race, the French Grand Prix, you talk about is is always a standout one. I think he was on a on a circuit that was horrifically dangerous and difficult and fast he bested Jackie Stewart which says everything I think you know and he should have won a Grand Prix definitely obviously uh, And but he always said uh, he didn't consider himself unlucky because he had this unluckiest man ever tag which has kind of haunted him uh, th- throughout his the rest of his life you know he said he wasn't unlucky he was incredibly lu- uh, lucky in fact because he survived which I think is, is true of that era you know the the the, the, the chances were you know, high chance you 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 weren't going to come out of that era, which is you know which is why Jackie retired when he did, and and so definitely and without looking back, you know, uh, Chris survived, um, so he had a lot to be thankful for. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's in response because it's the Mario Andretti quote, isn't there? He's so unlucky that if he took up undertaking, people would stop dying. I think was the was the Mario quote. Um, so, but but just also he just did everything else outside. So he won the the Tasman Cup in 1969, which was yeah pretty pretty effectively like a winter world championship almost. Uh, you know, against um, you know against people like Graham Hill and Jochen Rint, obviously multiple Grand Prix winners, world champions, um, uh, and actually he was so 
even in 1970, I think it was, he was still prized by Ferrari in sports cars. There was one race at Monza where um, there were three 512s against the Narmon 7s, which, uh, and, there, and there was left with one Pedro Rodriguez in the Golf Narmon 7. And Ferrari moved Eamon around the chasing cars to try and get one of them in range because he was the quickest driver. So he was, you know, he was the Ferrari lead driver at a time when there were some pretty handy Ferrari drivers around. So, yeah, had he, um, I think Damien's right, I think had he hung around in 70 and 71, if you look at what Jackie Ix did with that car cave, maybe Ix was still getting better, but Eamon surely would have done at least a good a job and maybe, but although maybe we'd have just added to the list of ridiculous ways that he lost, he lost races. It's just the universe didn't fancy it. I don't think that's our first list of series three. So make sure you tune in same time next week as we continue our series. Our Autosport.com editor Hayden Cobb will join us on the next one, along with these two gentlemen. Quick plug for the book. Then, what, what, when's it out? Is there a date? I've got to finish it yet. Okay, um, it should be in twenty twenty three. Hopefully, should so be. I'm I'm in the closing yards now so it's um yeah it's coming soon we look forward to having you back when you can tell us all about it we'll do a, we'll do a whole podcast on oh, it sounds like a fantastic oh yeah benetton podcast yeah. oh that, that means damien can write the top 10 benetton drivers because it was the one one of the few lists <laughs> i didn't take because i thought oh when's it when's it benetton when's it renault when's it in enstone obviously benetton became renault but raced against renault and tolman and i just thought it sounded too hard um well it's interesting uh so most people think benetton started in 86 because officially that's when the team changed its name from Tolman. But it bought Tolman uh, early in 85. So those who work at the team think that the last Tolman was a Benetton. So um, Pat Simmons says Benetton started in 85, not 86. And then it finished in 2001, which was the last season it was called Benetton, even though Renault had bought the team in 2000. I mean, that's inconsistent right there. That's inconsistent right, right there. You can't so, do one way, not the listen, other. You get a little insight into what I haven't done. <laughs> yeah. I haven't done a Benetton. I just thought it looked too hard. But maybe I can set, maybe that's a, maybe that's a task for, for Damien. Once you've done the book, Once obviously, the book you done. get the book done yeah, first. Let's yeah. get that out. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in to number two on our top tens list, series three. Uh, we'll catch you on the next one. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.